Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with my good friend, Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hi, Andy. So great to be back with you. And I want to remind our audience that uh, America's Constitution is sponsored by Everscholar, something which I was reminded of because I'm back from France, where I spent two weeks on an Everscholar program that I'm looking forward to telling our audience about in greater detail at some future time. Um, but here we are back in the great United States. And I say that um, for many reasons. And uh, one, you know, sort of hit home recently because I was thinking back to one of the reasons that I was proud to be an American when I was growing up. And it has to do with the fact that I'm Jewish. And although not heavily observant, I grew up in a, in a Jewish family. Growing up, I, I was very aware of the fact that we were able to worship freely, um, that uh, you know, there was no impediment in school. There was, I didn't feel any anti-Semitism. Um, and you know, some of my education made me aware of the fact that this was unusual in world history. I related that to the Constitution and to what I was told was um, the very important principle of separation of church and state. And so that's something that I, I always took pride in uh, as an American. Now, recently, there was a case uh, that the Supreme Court decided, which we're going to talk about today, the Carson case. And this was a case about religious freedom, and the Establishment Clause, and more, which Akil will tell us about. And the finding, at first, was somewhat upsetting to someone like me that valued this uh, what I saw as, as the, the, the uh, wall of separation, a phrase which we hear, have heard a lot about lately. I'm sure I'm not alone in that respect. And uh, so I put it to you, Akil, is this something that someone like myself should be upset about? Was I, does it go against a basic principle of the Constitution? Or have I been misinformed? So we're going to talk about church and state today. In our previous episodes, we, we covered the Dobbs case, case overruling Roe and Casey on abortion and unenumerated rights more generally. And we talked about the Bruin case, uh, reading very expansively uh, the Second Amendment and, and related rights of uh, self-defense, uh, not just in the home, but beyond. And that was the Bruin case. We're going to talk about a third really big case, got a lot of attention, the Carson case, and also um, and, and that was about um, school vouchers of a certain sort in the state of Maine. And another case that got a lot of attention about high school coach uh, praying on the 50-yard line, the Kennedy case. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to try to connect some of the, the issues in these cases to our, our previous conversations about originalism and about the American Constitution. And um, Andy, I'm very proud to be an American, too. Um, and our stories are somewhat similar, even though I'm in a slightly different faith tradition. You mentioned this podcast is sponsored by Everscholar, and I'm so grateful to you and Everscholar for that sponsorship. It's also, candidly, an opportunity for us to try to encourage you, the audience, to think about um, some of the books that I've published, um, which have been 
also featured in, in Ever Scholar, and we're going to talk about some of them today, a book that I wrote about the Bill of Rights, because this church and state issue looked um, differently at the found, looked different at the founding than it did after the Civil War, and we'll talk more about that. But my most recent book, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840, it's the one they're most proud of, and, and I do hope if you are learning from the podcast that some of you will consider taking a look at that book because you'll learn a lot more. But I want to begin, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll do it again, with the acknowledgments in that book. Because there was a reason behind them. Because this is a book, the first of three, all about what America is about. The words that made us, how we, pun intended, the United States, how we came to be a we. And there was a lot of diversity, religious and otherwise, at the founding. And how did these different colonies come to to fuse together indivisibly. So the words that made us in volume two, 1760 to 1840, because we, we weren't quite a we at the beginning, and by the end we were, at least legally. Volume two will be the words that made us equal, and we're going to talk a lot about equality today, religious equality, as well as racial equality. So volume two will be America's Constitutional Conversation, 1840 to 1920, the words that made us equal. And then volume three will be the words that made us modern America's Constitutional Conversation, 1920 to 2000. So three 80-year periods, an homage to Lincoln, four score years, three different books, each taking an 80-year chunk of four score years, and telling the story of America from 1760 to 2000. And I'm really proud to be an American, but here's how the trilogy begins. begins with a dedication. And I didn't highlight any of this, and I didn't even explain it in the afterword quite, but Andy, it's just what you were talking about, about what America actually is. Here's the dedication. This book is dedicated to Lin-Manuel Miranda, Vanessa Nadal, Ron Chernow, and Kaiser Khan, and of course to Neil Kumar Katyal, who introduced me to each of you. Thank you all jointly and severally for helping me and so many others see the true meaning of America. Now, there's a lot going on there, and I won't go into all of it, but I chose those people carefully. I, in an earlier episode, mentioned John Ely, and his, who was a liberal who was pro-choice and criticized Roe versus Wade and wrote this epic book called Democracy and Distrust, and I mentioned the dedication. He clerked for Earl Warren, and he dedicated to Earl Warren you don't need many heroes if you choose carefully. And so I thought a lot about my dedication. And this is dedicated to people who actually embody America's religious variation, diversity, if you will. So I happen to be an adult convert Christian, Protestant. And Neil Katyal, who introduced me to everyone else, happens to be a practicing Hindu, as are my parents. Ron Chernow, the great author of the book Hamilton, on which the great play is based, happens to be Jewish, like you, Andy, as are many, many of my closest friends, you know, way disproportionate to their numbers in America. There are, uh, what, um, three million Jews in America? And I think I know a million of them. Um, so, and Kaiser Khan happens to be a Muslim American whose, whose father, I mean, whose son lost his life in the service of, of our country. And he's from the same town that my, parent, my dad grew up in, Lahore. And my dad is, is, to repeat, Hindu. And 
Uh, I think Lynn was born Catholic, Lynn Miranda. I don't know exactly you know, how he would describe himself today. His spouse, Vanessa, is the other co-dedicatee, and I don't know how she would dis- dis- describe herself today. And part of the point is maybe it doesn't matter, you know, because in America, we're all Americans, whether we're of this faith or that one or of no one, whether we start out you know, one thing and, and choose something else over the course of our lives and our, our faith journeys as I have. I sort of, you know, went from being born Hindu to kind of being uh, growing up agnostic, atheistic, to having a conversion experience of sorts. And, and other people, they move in other directions. And that, but we're all Americans. So that's very important to me, Andy. And, and you are right in all of that. Now the question, though, is constitutionally, what's the best way to think about the, the, the relevant principle? And in particular, there are two competing metaphors or visions. One, let me call it the separation idea. It's associated with a metaphor, the wall of separation. A different way of talking about this, which is the equality idea. And I'm an equality person and not a separation person constitutionally. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But let me first talk about what the world looked like when you and I are born. Because I'm an originalist, and I'm an originalist in part because one of my heroes is the great originalist who was the architect, in my view, the intellectual leader of the Warren Court, which, to remind everyone, repudiated all sorts of precedents. And that leader was, that liberal originalist was Hugo Lafayette Black. And the Warren Court kicks into high gear in 1963, and all sorts of precedents start falling by the wayside. And just to remind people, before 1963, there was organized sectarian prayer led by teachers in almost every school in America. Then the previous courts had upheld all of that. And the Warren Court basically repudiating precedents you know, smashing through them, uh, busting through them in two really famous cases, Engel versus Vitale and Abington versus Shemp in the early 1960s basically changes the world, the daily lives of all American students. And before I um, just tell you a little bit about more about Engel and um, Abington, which I think were in 1962 and 1963, right as the Warren Court is kicking into high gear. I want to uh, correct the record. I think there are actually not 3 million Jew- Jews in America, but closer to 8 million. But, but I still know about a million of them, which is pretty good. And thank you, Yale College, because that's when it really happened for me. And of my five roommates, senior year, two, Matt Eilenberg and Aaron Mackler were Jewish. Aaron actually became an ordained rabbi. And uh, my law school roommate and very dear friend, Sam Zurier, so they took me to Seder's and, and introduced me to, to Jewish culture, and, you know, and I loved it. Still do. And, and Andy, that's one of the things you and I actually offline talk a lot about, in fact. Okay. And, but, and it is an important part of, of I think Jews are, are, as a group, very patriotic um, in, in America, not, not necessarily more than other people, but as a group. And I remember just one personal anecdote. Um, on, in 2001, you know, on the September 11th attacks, obviously it was in the New York area in particular, but everywhere it was, was traumatic. And that Friday night, well, that was a Tuesday, and then that Friday night there, we went to Shabbat services, which we don't usually do. Um, what we did that, 
that night uh, feeling a, a need for sense of community and the place was absolutely packed probably 10 times as many people as you usually had and the rabbi you know led a, the usual service and he had a, a very nice sermon but the moment that that stuck with me was at the end when we have a closing hymn and it's usually a, a hebrew song um, but he said tonight our closing hymn is the star-spangled banner and that was a and i think that was so appropriate and uh there's, so there's this bond that religious minorities, not just Jews, I think, feel uh, because of the protection that they feel in America. So let's start just with that and this idea of minorities. And we can think about deep connections between the constitutional law of racial minorities and the constitutional law of religious minorities and the need to protect both. Okay, so let me take a big step back. I'm going to talk, I'll come back to this, but at the founding, the relevant church and state idea was that there wasn't much of a church and state idea. In other words, America is a vast continent, and the different colonies, which have now become states in 1776, have very different understandings about how religion and government should interrelate. And so at the founding, how could they actually come together, given that there was actually so much diversity of practice? Half the states were pretty strongly theocratic. They had pretty strongly established churches. And in fact, 12 of them of the 13, had religious tests of some sort for office holding. The only one that didn't, when the Constitution is adopted, is Virginia. And it didn't promise that in its Constitution. It was just a statute, the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom of 1785. New York actually was in the process of adding a religious qualification. So either 11 or 12 states, depending how you count, when the Constitution is being ratified, 11 or 12, actually have religious tests for office holding. The federal government, federal constitution says you can't have that. And that's partly to be neutral among the different states because if you had some sort of test, oh, you have to believe in this gospel or that one or um, take an oath of office to the Trinity or to the divinity of Jesus, well, there's great variation among the states on all of that. And, and then the federal government would be picking sides among the states. So the federal constitution, though, is way ahead of state counterparts in Article 6. This is before there is even a First Amendment saying no religious tests for federal office holding. But there are religious tests for state office holding to repeat in 11 or 12 of the states. There's also huge variation. So first of all, here's just the religious variation in America. I told you the dedicatees. Okay, there's Jew, a Jew, a Muslim, a Protestant, a Hindu, Catholic, okay. So actually none were Protestants, but I'm Protestant, okay. So um, at the founding, think about their variation. Now it tends to be within Christianity, Christendom, but huge variation. You've got Congregationalists, low church folk up in New England. And you've got Anglicans, Episcopalians, high church folks in Virginia. In the middle, you've got Quakers in Pennsylvania. You've got very religiously diverse ensemble in New York, New Jersey. You've got Catholic enclave in Baltimore. You've got religious free thinkers in 
in Rhode Island. You've got Baptists scattered in, in various places in, in Virginia and elsewhere. And you might think, well, they're all kind of Christians. That doesn't seem very diverse, Akil. And I'm saying, oh, well, then you need to know some history. Because you only need two religions or sects or, or, or different, slightly different sets of beliefs to kill each other over, and you can kill each other over endlessly about angels and pinheads, Protestants and, and Catholics, Christians and Muslims, Muslims and Jews, Christians and Jews, Muslims and Hindus, Muslims and Hindus and Christians, any two will do. And for a century at least, Europe was awash in, in blood because of these um, religious wars. And America has every bit as much religious diversity as all of Europe. So how are they going to come together? And they need to come together geostrategically, militarily, because otherwise, and, and demographically, they won't be big enough in population and um, broad enough in geography to protect themselves against uh, all the thugs around the world, the, the, the monarchs and, and, and the mercenaries and, uh, and the murderers all around the world. Not to mention to protect themselves from each other, which is, you know, of course, Lincoln's point eventually. That, that, you know, that to have a bunch of smaller nations on each other's borders there in, in America would have been just as dangerous. So um, we've got to come together. And that's the story, by the way, that I tell in the new book, the words that, that made us, is the story of indivisibility. It builds on an earlier book, America's Constitution, a biography. What's the common denominator? Especially when they decide that they're going to adopt a thing that we call the Bill of Rights. The common denominator is that the federal government will have no policy on government and religion. Okay? So it's actually going to be agnostic on the topic. Here's what kept the peace in Europe that ended these ages of religious warfare, the 30 years war, the 100 years war, peace of Augsburg of 1555, and the treaty, and then the peace of Westphalia of 1648 basically culminated in these settlements that there would be no empire-wide policy on religion. It was going to be left up to the local, local option. The religion of the local prince, in, in some little principality, would be the religion of the principality. In Latin, cuis regio, eus religio. Meaning that basically there wasn't going to be an empire-wide policy because there was too much diversity of practice. Each little pocket could decide for itself. And the Latin phrase is cuis regio, eus religio. And by the way, on abortion, maybe we're going to be moving more toward that, you know, with Texas having, you know, its rules and California having its rules. And, oh, if you don't like the Texas rules, you may need to move to California. And this is, this is you know, a staggering thought to, that's beginning to occur to some folks. But at the founding, the idea is, oh, if you don't like the religious policy of your locality, you've got to, you know, maybe pick a different state. What does the what we call the Establishment Clause says? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion on the topic of an establishment of religion in regards in reference to in regards to in re an establishment of religion. So yeah, Congress can't have a national church. That's true, but it also can't disestablish state churches because that would be a law respecting an establishment of religion on the topic 
of an establishment of religion. So the First Amendment in this respect was a federalism provision in certain respect. It was more like the Tenth Amendment. We, we can't decide on one clear national rule that will, one size fits all, that will fit New England and the middle states and, and, and the South. So we're just going to say, the feds are going to butt out, we're going to leave it to states. It's more like the Tenth Amendment. Leave it up to the states. That's actually what kept the peace on the continent of Europe. Local option. Curious regio is religio. In all fairness, I think it's a little bit of an overstatement of what happened in Europe because the, the Thirty Years' War occurs after the Peace of Augsburg, which which is when that uh, and, and the, the, that was eight million people died in the Thirty Years' War. Um, well, so it's fifteen fifty five, and then again sixteen forty eight. So you see, right. you're, you're absolutely right. But that's a century of bloodshed in the middle of of Europe, and let's not even talk about the twentieth century. Yes. Okay. So flash forward. Now it's the 1860s, and we're going to actually have a set of rights against states and localities. We didn't at the founding. The rights were basically guaranteed against the federal government because the concern, we just fought a war against an, an imperial center, and the Bill of Rights is a reflection, and there, there's an anxiety about the new central government that will emerge to replace London, and the rights in what we call the Bill of Rights are against that central government, and they actually do sound in localism. The Tenth Amendment does, states um, reserved rights to the states. The original Second Amendment militia vision is localists against an imperial center. We talked about that in our Bruin discussion. But the Establishment Clause, you see, is of a piece with that. It's basically saying local governments, can de- state governments can decide for themselves church-state policy. Now, as a you know, many Americans are brought up hearing that Thomas Jefferson, in particular, is a great advocate of uh, of freedom of religion, and and I think you know Jefferson would go beyond saying that any given state, you know, should have its own established church or something like that. He would, but if you're doing serious history, if you're an originalist, you need to remember that. Virginia is an outlier. It's the only state, and he's the crusader with the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom in 1785, but it's the outlier state, and that's not even a constitutional provision. It's just a statute that could be repealed tomorrow. And when it comes to the First Amendment, he's not even in America when it's it's being um, drafted. It's being proposed in the first Congress, I think, in September of 1789. I think he returns from France November, December of that year, if memory serves. So he's he's not even around when it's initially drafted, and he has this metaphor of a wall of separation that's a letter to the Danbury Baptist, you know, a decade after that. So that's not what America is agreeing to. What America is agreeing to, read the text, is the Congress shall just butt out. It shall make no law on the topic of respecting, just like the language of Article 4 talks about Congress having power over laws, respecting the territories on the subject of the territories. And that's the only thing that America as a whole as opposed to Thomas Jefferson, would agree on. Thomas Jefferson has views, but they're not actually widely shared. Lots of other people have lots of other views. But So the only thing you can agree on at the founding is the Fed should have just butt out. But by the 1860s, there's another war 
and in that were the states of mis- preceding that were the states of misbehaved with um, nullification and secession and slavery and all the rest. We need a new Bill of Rights. That new Bill of Rights is going to limit state governments. We're going to go from Congress shall make no law which shall abridge to no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge. No law shall make abridge, but now it's limiting states. And these amendments end giving the federal government power. Congress shall have power. Congress shall have power. As opposed to the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. And now we're going to have federal courts, national courts, enforcing rights against localities. But the world has profoundly changed in between. All the states, half the states, remember, had established churches at the founding. They've gotten rid of them by the 1860s as a matter of state constitutional law. The last one really is Massachusetts in 1833. So now the common denominator of the states has really shifted. We don't have established church anymore. And what's the deep theme of the Reconstruction? It's actually equality. The first, that everyone's born equal, you know. Um, and, and that is a Jefferson idea. Everyone's created equal. He, that's a, what he says in the Declaration. But he doesn't fully live it out, given slavery and other things. But by the time of the 14th Amendment, here's the deep idea. And then, Andy, we're going to come back to England, Abington, and talk about what school was like when we were born, public school, and, and what it came to be thanks to Hugo Black and the Warren Court and the originalism of the Warren Court which I'm going to defend, liberal originalism. Let's just take one so, moment before we proceed on to that to, relate, to, to clue our audience into what all this has to do with Carson, the case that we're going to talk about. It's all about religious equality in American education. Right, so there's a voucher program of sorts, and the question is whether or not that, that, that voucher can, that the government can use monies that it's sending to schools in lieu of tuition and other costs to private schools that are uh, sectarian. So it's all about religion and education. And so, audience, we will connect the dots. Right, so just but, so you can keep that in mind as we go through this discussion. Yeah. But originalism, I'm sort of saying, well, first let's actually understand, we start with what the Constitution actually says, and then we try to apply it to, you know, the, the, the problems of our era. Okay, so by the 1860s, the idea is that everyone is created equal. Everyone is born equal. The first sentence says, everyone born in America is born a, a citizen. That is a free and equal citizen. What does it mean to be born an equal citizen means to be born equal whether you're black or white, you know. And I argued in an earlier podcast whether you're male or female, whether you're born gay or straight, whether you're born in wedlock or out of wedlock, whether you're first born in your family or fifth born, but also whether you're born Jew or Gentile. And they would have actually talked about, they saw certain religions as race-like. They would have talked about the, the Hebrew race. And they saw certain religions as some um, ascriptive, sort of birth characteristics. So they, they wouldn't have seen as sharp a distinction as some of us make today between religious equality and racial equality, but they believe in equality. Okay? That's the big idea. Now, and I'm going to tell you a little bit later how equality can be in some tension with a certain ideas of separation. And if actually I have to choose, I'm going to say the key idea, the key 14th Amendment idea is equality. So hold that thought, and now let me remind you what the world was like when you and I are born, Andy, which is organized sectarian prayer 
in public schools everywhere in America. Public taxpayer money is being used in public schools, and the schools are either composing their own prayer and having teachers recite it and and, and students uh, participate in this religious ceremony, or they're picking some scripture, scripture, the New Testament, let's say, and they're going to pick different versions of the Bible. It might be the the King James Bible, the Protestant Bible, and and certain translations or something, as opposed to the the Catholic Douay Bible with the so-called Apocrypha. So the government is either going to compose its own religious statement, prayer, or pick its preferred one, and lead organized sectarian prayer in the public schools. That's what's happening everywhere in America. And the Warren Court, led by an originalist, Hugo Black, says that's unconstitutional. That's really a violation of the deep principles of the 14th Amendment, because these are, these are states and localities. It's really the 14th Amendment. Everyone says the First Amendment, but the First Amendment limits only the federal government. It's Congress shall make no law. Technically, these are 14th Amendment cases, which is what you see Clarence Thomas was talking about in the Bruin case, which we talked about when he said, oh, maybe if you're doing serious originalism, you need to pay attention to what rights were understood to mean in 1868, which is when the 14th Amendment was ratified. It was proposed in 1866, ratified in 1868, rather than 1789 to 91, which is when the original amendments were proposed by James Madison, 1789, and then ratified a couple of years later. I guess my my understanding of that is that um, 1868 is the moment at which these restrictions become effective against the states. Correct, so they're just when they're ratifying them at that point. The question, and what did they have in mind that they were implementing? At yes, that moment? what were they thinking of? And I'm saying equality, racial equality, religious equality, equal protection, equal citizenship, birth equality. We're born equal, black or white. I would say gay or straight, even though they may not have understood those concepts quite the way we do. Male or female, in wedlock or out of wedlock, Jew or Gentile. Okay, so now let's apply that. Now that's originalism. You see, that's what that's, what, and we're doing more of this now maybe than we did in previous episodes because, oh, that's, that's the jurisprudential earthquake, starting with the relevant constitutional provisions. And, and now let's talk about the Warren Court Revolution, led by an originalist, Hugo Black. I'm reading now from my book, America's Unwritten Constitution, a chapter all about the Warren Court. Surely, I say, government could not oblige a public school child to recite a state-written or state-sponsored prayer as part of a state-run religious ritual to force, say, a young Catholic to engage in a non-Catholic religious ceremony would violate first principles of religious liberty principles with deep roots stretching back to the founding. So there was the free exercise clause at the founding, in addition to the, non, to the establishment clause, and the free exercise was about religious equality. Not established, the establishment clause was more about kind of just federal government, just don't, don't get involved in, in state establishment policy. So I say, to force, say, a, a young Catholic to engage in non-Catholic, a non-Catholic religious ceremony would violate first principles of religious liberty, principles with deep roots, stretching back to the founding. But once a right of dissenting students to freely opt out of state-organized prayer 
was recognized, okay, so um, you had to at the very least let people opt out, you know, and rather than compel them into a religious ceremony contrary to their religious views. Hard questions arose about whether a genuinely fair opt-out system could work. For in the very act of opting out, religious dissenters would need to stand up and thus stand out. They would need to be visibly and publicly separated from the others during the state-run prayer. In effect, they would need to be segregated from the others in the public schools, at least for that instant. Now, separate is not always unequal. That's the lesson of separate bathrooms, sports teams, and gym classes for males and females in most public schools today. But separate can well be unequal. And in the wake of the Brown versus Board of Education case, justices were understand, in 1954, were understandably sensitive to the constitutional problems inherent in government policies that physically and symbolically separated and divided America's citizens, America's equal citizens, along formal lines of race or religion. And when I wrote that, just why did I pick Catholics, by the way? I picked it because of my friend Walter Dellinger, who happened to be Catholic. And, and our audience has heard the episode about Walter, and who, who recently passed. And he talked about how he and the one little Jewish boy in his class. He grew up in the Deep South. Whenever there was the prayer, they were basically dismissed from the classroom. And that was every day. And he was made to basically stand out. And his Jewish friend, it took me a long time to get there, Andy, but that's where you began with, you know, this idea that it just doesn't seem right to to single people out for possible public disapprobation by the the, the majority group, um, religious group in any community. So Abington and Engel, to me, are absolute rock-solid correct cases, but the best way to think about them, I believe, is using the metaphor of religious equality. So um, now we're going to come to Carson. So isn't there a, also an element of, of anonymity there? In other words, that you don't have to really declare your religion. And isn't that sort of related to freedom of assembly questions where you don't have to say, like, the other members of your organization, you don't have to name names, you know, and things like that. And then- uh, I, I believe in general in a right of anonymous speech, and Publius was anonymous, and actually that puts me with the conservatives on certain issues of, of political expression post-Citizens United. I actually am with Justice Thomas in a case called Ohio versus McIntyre, saying you actually have a, a right to say, you know, vote for Lipka, and I don't have to say, you know, who's funding that bumper sticker um, or that billboard. I think I have a right to anonymous speech, and Scalia didn't see that in this case called Ohio versus McIntyre, but Thomas did, and he, as an originalist, says one word, Publius. What are you talking about? There's anonymous speech at the founding, and it's really important. Publius, just to remind everyone, was the pen name of Hamilton, Jay, and Madison, but they didn't actually use their, their, their names. They, they hid you know, um, behind pen name. And yes, Andy, I think there is a right to anonymous religious speech and political speech of a certain sort, and we shouldn't force people to stand up and stand out. Okay? Now, let's take all of that and let's now apply that to the Carson case. And religious folk in America had a a very strong negative reaction to these cases, just like we're seeing today. Now, these cases deviated from precedent and 
and, and settle, settled practices, just as Brown versus Board of Education did. Brown you know, required desegregation of schools that had been segregated with the blessing of the Supreme Court for decades under Plessy versus Ferguson. And with the blessing of the court, there had been organized sectarian prayer everywhere, and now the court is throwing those precedents to the winds, and there was a lot of pushback. Now, the difference is, oh, in Brown, you could say, and in England, Abington, the court is expanding rights rather than contracting them. And that is a difference. And so on the expansion-contraction issue, a difference. But rights, property rights were contracted in the 1930s, the, the Lochner Revolution, as we talked about before. The, the rights that are being recognized by the Warren Court are seen as liberal rights of a certain sort. And today, with guns or something, you're seeing you know, conservative rights being very broadly read and in violation of or in seemingly settled practices. You see again and again people saying, oh, this New York gun law in Bruin, it was on the books for 100 years or something. Well, you know, organized prayer in the schools was there for 100 years too. And, and so, you know, if you have an historical perspective, you see this is not so different. Bruin is for the Second Amendment, reading it very broadly, what... Abington and Engel were for the First Amendment. And, and, and both of them, technically, they're 14th Amendment cases, all of these, they're applying as applied against states and localities. Now, religious folk basically say, oh, the schools are hostile to religion. This isn't equality. This isn't neutrality. Schools are affirmatively hostile to the religion and religious practice. I don't think that. I think they're just purely neutral. One way of, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about a later case where I think the court went too far called Wallace versus Jaffrey, which involved moments of silence. Well, let me just talk about it now. It's in the mid-1980s, and here's what I like about the moment of silence idea. No one has to stand out or stand up or stand out. If you and I and, and, our, and our friend um, um, Bill and our other friend Jill are, are all in the classroom together, you know, um, you can pray and I can think about atheist thoughts if I want and Bill can think about nothing at all and Jill can think about baseball. And, and none of us is the wiser. And, and I like that, that no one is standing up and standing out, whether you're Jewish or Hindu or Protestant or Catholic or whatever. And you say, well, why do we need to do this at all? Maybe simply to try to, to make the point that our public schools are not anti-religion. They're just neutral on the subject. And by the way, I'll say it a different way. The teacher should not be leading any organized prayer of any sort but the students on their own are allowed to pray, even in school, you know. And some of my friends did before every test. Oh, I saw them pray, you know, uh, very briefly and quietly to themselves before every test. It's, they're allowed to as individuals. They have rights against the school. Okay, now let's talk about the Carson case. Does the school have to put time aside for the students that want to pray to pray? I don't think it has to, but I think if it does, does have at the beginning of every day a two-minute or one-minute uh, moment, that's permissible. It's not, it doesn't really violate a strong equality idea precisely because you don't have to think religious thoughts in any way, shape, or form. That's your moment of silence, but, but, yes. uh, but what about praying out loud? 
who's doing it? Well, I think that even if the students are doing it, it's a problem if the school designates a time that, for this, because the students that don't do it will stand out. So if a school after school allows there to be various student clubs and they can reserve a room and a student club can reserve a room for a trading stamps, the stamp club, and the student organization can reserve a room for chess. I was on the chess club. I wasn't very good, but I was on the chess club and we met um, in a in a classroom. Actually, we met, I think, at lunchtime, but also after school now, if, if, if memory serves. And so if you can, um, uh, any student organization can basically register for a room, if you're the stamp club or the chess club or the, the cheerleading club, I think you can reserve a room for your Bible study. Right, um, no, that's not what I was study. talking about. I was talking about during the actual school day when you're required to be there, and you're required to be in class together. If they say, here's two minutes before the test, and now you can pray, and you can pray out loud if you want, then you don't have a moment of silence. Instead, you have students that are praying out loud and students that are not praying out loud. And that's a Yeah, I think that's not so good. Yeah, I um, would agree with that. And that, okay. that goes against what the, the virtue of the moment of silence, which in the absence of mind reading, you know, you can't be uh, you know, identified as what it is, whether you're praying or not. And that's going to be really important because in the Kennedy case, which we haven't talked about actually, and the facts changed over the course of the litigation, but it involved actually either a silent or a very quiet prayer, and that might be relevant. This is the coach at the 50-yard line. Okay, but before we get to that, Carson. For those of you who are lawyers and judges and admitted to the bar in any state, you probably know by now that this episode is accredited for a continuing legal education directly in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and by reciprocity elsewhere by going to podcast.njsba.com and entering the code I'm about to announce. The code for this episode is LEADER. That's not case-sensitive, LEADER, L-E-A-D-E-R. Thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. So in a nutshell, and we can be pretty quick now that we've identified, you know, the big constitutional framework at issue, we have the state of Maine. It has public schools, but it has rural areas where there are just not enough students for the public school, for it to create a public school. So they basically, if you're in this rural area, your family gets a voucher and it gets to use a voucher at a private school that meets the proper criteria. It has to teach reading, writing, arithmetic. It's got to, it's got to teach the, 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 the basics. It has to be it's accredited. To be accredited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, in Oliver Twist, this is the example I've always used, Fagan School for Pickpockets. You have to, they're going to teach you how to pick a pocket or two. No, that's not going to qualify. Okay. In the Carson case, Maine basically said you can use your school, your, your voucher at a private, non-religious school. But if the school has any religious component at all, you lose the voucher. That is, if they had, let's say, let's say it's a Catholic school, and just it's the exact same curriculum as the school as another um, uh, school, but they have a prayer at the beginning of the day, you know, uh, to Jesus or to, to to Mary and the saints, or or they have a prayer at the end of the day. Even if it was as small as that, if they have a religious component, the voucher cannot be used at that school, and. The Supreme Court, I think rightly, in an opinion per Chief Justice Roberts says, 
that's a violation of, in effect, the the religious equality idea, which is the core 14th Amendment idea. It's a kind of tax on prayer, so to speak, if you lose a voucher just because you have a prayer at the beginning or the end or at lunch or or what have you. Why am I calling it an originalist decision? Because I think it's in line with the deep values of the 14th Amendment, religious equality. It's in tension with certain cases from the 1970s that using the metaphor of the wall of separation actually said no government money can ever go to a religious operation. And so just as Bruin read gun rights very broadly, even though there weren't a lot of Supreme Court precedents that said that, so it kind of went beyond the precedents in the name of originalism, and we talked about that. And just as Dobbs actually repudiated precedents, most dramatically Roe and Casey in the name of constitutional first principles of text, history, and structure. So Carson is actually moving away from certain separationist precedents, wall of separation precedents from the 1970s, in which it was very common for the court to actually um, use the the metaphor wall of separation and and quote Jefferson. The court hasn't done that in about 25 years, but it, it, it did in an earlier era. And per Chief Justice Roberts, the court is moving away from all of that, I think toward the constitutional pole star, the correct one, of religious equality. It's interesting Uh, because the wall of separation, you know, you talked about how at the founding um, there were religious requirements uh, for office. Uh, The wall of separation had reached the point where they were actually religious prohibitions, in a sense, against uh, running for office. Jefferson, and this is partly his experience in the French Revolution, was profoundly anti-clerical, as are many French people even today. It's a reaction against a place that had a much stronger established church uh, in the Ancien Regime, uh, did France, than America ever had, where establishments were were much um, lighter in their effects. But the anti-clerical tendencies of Jefferson um, and people of his ilk went so far as to say, oh, if you're a clergy person, you're not eligible to be a government official. What separation of church and state means is if you're a churchman, if you're a clergyman, you have to be separated from the state, from the government. You are ineligible to serve in government if you're a clergyman. Now, the the no religious test oath says that it's not the rule for the federal constitution, but states had some of those rules in place. And as late as 1978, actually at least one state still had that law on the books. Uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court unanimously struck it down, a case called McDaniel versus Patey, um, 1978. But it actually was a state that had a re- restriction on religious ministers holding office as such. And now you see that's not at all equal, you know, to treat someone worse just because they happen to be a minister as opposed to a doctor or a carpenter or a wheelwright or a shopkeeper. I mean, that's, that's discriminating against religious people as such. But that's the kind of mistake you may be likely to fall into if your organizing metaphor is separation rather than equality. So, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the court in Carson, 
basically says the following. And he's building on two earlier cases, which I'm not going to talk about in detail. One called Trinity um, Lutheran, and, and one's called Espinosa. I'm not going to go into it in detail. Roberts's version, flavor of originalism, is more gradualist. He will try to turn the cases around, maybe even to some, sometimes 180 degrees, but he won't do it all at once. He won't have a hairpin turn if he can avoid it. He'll do it in three steps. So, so like the, the witch in The Wizard of Oz, these things must be done delicately. So he's going to gradually boil the frog in three steps, which is what he wanted to do, you see, in the Dobbs case. Okay, let's just uphold the Mississippi law. 15 weeks is enough time, and, and we don't need to actually go all the way to say fetal heartbeat is okay and, and um, prohibition of abortion from the time of conception is okay. We don't need to do all of that. Let's just do it gradually. Let's do it in several steps. Maybe in five to eight years, we'll turn the whole thing around. Now, the majority doesn't want to do that, and partly they don't want to do that because if you ask me to speculate oh, they're aware that things could happen. Um, they're aware that, oh, Antonin Scalia was alive one day and not the next, and so too with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, and people can change their mind. Uh, uh, Roberts himself changed his mind in the middle of the Sibelius case, and three justices changed their mind in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the middle of the thing. So if we got five votes, let's do it now. So they were in a rush to do it. And the logic of uh, originalism permits them to do that. We've talked about that. But the chief's version of originalism is um, often more gradualistic. And that's what he did here. And here's his big claim. His big idea is, look, you don't have to have a voucher plan at all. The distinction between public schools and private schools is itself not a religious distinction. And you can have only private schools, and everyone's taxed. Kiel, I think you mean there. You can have only public schools, and and there's no and there's no organized prayer in the schools. But that's not because it's anti-religion. It's just because it's neutral. And I would say the neutrality can be expressed by a, a moment of silence. But the court in Wallace versus Jaffrey said you couldn't do that. And I think that case is ready to be overruled now. It's, it's, my prediction is it will be overruled at some point. It's, it's ripe for reversal because it, it goes too far. Um, it, it kind of, but... Well, in some um, ways that comes down to a, you know, it's some, uh, you know, a question which is not really a constitutional question, which is, is a moment of silence religiously neutral or not? You know, and some yeah. people might say, is something about it which is inherently religious and therefore... Well, it, you know, it, or, or, it, but if they say, you know, here's a moment of silence, you can think religious thoughts if you like, you can think anti-religious thoughts if you like, you can think, you know, about baseball if you like. Right, okay. so there's a question is whether a disclaimer is, is valuable. Yeah. That, that actually, like, I think, the, is relevant the, to the Kennedy case, it, by the way. It, it is, the, the, like if there's a Miranda warning or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But Wallace versus Jaffrey has always been a case that I've had some problems with, and I criticize Wallace versus Jaffrey in America's unwritten constitution. I think the court went too far. But here's, back to the majority opinion, then I'll talk about Justice Sotomayor's dissent. And she literally loses me at hello. Her first sentence, she lost me. Literally. And I love her. I really do. I mean, I, I, I'm so smitten with... I mean, she's, she's such an amazing human being. But I, I don't think... And I've never met Chief Justice Roberts in my life. He couldn't pick me out of the lineup. But my job is to actually analyze the constitutional issues. And he says, you don't have to have a voucher system at all. But if you do have it, it can't discriminate against religious schools as such. 
What, now, what about this idea that there shouldn't be money going to religion? And, and, some, and Noah Feldman thinks that. He's, he's lost big time in, in this case. And, and David Souter, for whom he clerked, thought that. And John Paul Stevens thought that. And other people thought that. And they invoke Madison. So they have a different take on originalism, but I think they're wrong. I think what Madison and others were saying is you can't give money to religion, qua religion, as such. But here, you're not giving it to the private religious school. As such, you're just giving it to a private school, and as long as they teach reading, writing, arithmetic, don't ask, don't tell. We don't care whether you teach religion or not. It's not our business, basically. And to withhold it from you, if you would otherwise, because you have a prayer, if you would otherwise get it, would be to actually impose a tax on religion. So you're not getting the voucher because you're religious, you're getting the voucher regardless of whether you're religious, and that's what equality is all about. Now, I'm going to read you a passage that I wrote many years ago saying just that. So I haven't changed my mind on these uh, ideas. Um, The court has come around to me, and then I'll tell you about Breyer's dissent and Sotomayor's dissent. It was six to three, as uh, was Bruin, and um, Crest Dobbs was five, four, with the chief agreeing with the five in result, but not in in reasoning. So this is, again, from my book, America's Unwritten Constitution. I'm going to read you three paragraphs. And it's almost the same as the Carson case, you see. Suppose the government decides to give each child a computer so that truly no child will be left behind. In this hypothetical government program, Every child attending a public school receives this computer, as does every child who attends a private school that's either aggressively secular or merely religiously indifferent. But what about children who attend private religious schools, schools whose curricula are otherwise comparable to the private non-religious school, but that also add religion to the educational experience? May such children receive the computer? Must they? Anyone whose organizing metaphor is separation might be inclined to answer no to both questions. Thus, several post-Warren Court cases from the mid-1970s, when talk of Jefferson's wall reached its peak on the court, actually held that this sort of discrimination against religious schools was not merely constitutionally permissible, but constitutionally required. Fortunately, over the past decade, I'm writing this in 2012, The court has returned to its senses, overruled several of these cases, and begun to see and say clearly that, of course, private religious schools should not be treated worse than otherwise comparable private non-religious schools. The school should be treated equally as should the children. So long as a private school meets proper educational standards for teaching the the basic three R's and so on, it's simply none of the government's business whether religion is taught pervasively or is a special part of the curriculum, whether the kids are praying in school-sponsored ways. The proper touchstones are religious liberty and equality, not separation as such. If everyone else is receiving a government benefit, then so so must religious folk, not because they are religious, but regardless of whether they are religious. A private secular academy should never lose its government benefit merely because it later decides to add a daily prayer to its classroom regimen. Such a tax on prayer 
for that is what a funding cutoff would be, would constitute an obvious violation of the ideals of liberty and equality at the heart of the 14th Amendment. Last paragraph, and this is going to connect also to the Kennedy case, the coach case. To see the same point in the context of public school education, because the Kennedy case, the 50-yard line case, was about public schools, and that's the context that generated Brown versus Board of Education and Engel versus Vitale and Abington versus Shemp. Note that while governments may not properly organize prayer, private citizens may. If a student-organized and student-run stamp club is allowed to meet in the classroom after school, as is the student chess club, the student baseball card club, and any other student club, then the student-organized and student-run Bible study must be allowed equal access. The key concept is not that religion must in every way be walled out of and separated from, see this metaphor, wall and separation, separate from school space, but rather that religious students must be treated equally with all others. In short, the watchword is not separate, but equal. And that's, of course, a kind of punning reference on the language of Plessy versus Ferguson. So that's, now, what does Breyer say? And so I'm with the majority. What does Breyer say? Oh, it's permissible for this voucher to be used at the religious private school. It's not an establishment clause violation, as the court once held. You know, when this uh, separationism was, you know, at its rhetorical peak in the Supreme Court, it's permissible, but there's not a requirement that you give the voucher equally to the religious school. And I'm thinking, yes, there is, because otherwise it's discrimination, don't you see? And he makes some other points that some of these religious schools, they themselves actually discriminate in various ways. They, for example, give preferences to co-religionists, both for students and on the faculty. And they do other things. They may not be equal in admitting LGBT folks. My answer to that, fine, then you can have neutral rules to say no one gets a voucher, whether you're religious or not, unless you have non-discriminatory policies that you, you have to admit all comers, no discrimination against LGBT, that no discrimination on the basis of, of religion in picking your students or your faculty. But th- that would be different from the law that you've passed. The law that you've passed makes a school ineligible merely because it has a prayer and is otherwise indistinguishable. So that's the problem, Justice Breyer, with what you say. You're, you're, you're talking about facts that are different than what the law actually says. And after this litigation, actually, according to a piece by Aaron Tang in the New York Times, Maine actually began to tweak its, its rules. And, and if the rules are the same rules for private religious school as for the private non-religious school, then there's no discrimination against religion as such. That seems like it might run afoul of Fulton case, uh, you know, last year with the, the, the where the Philadelphia tried to enforce its pre-existing prohibition against doing business with um, organizations that discriminated against LGBTQ, um, you know, on the basis of sexual orientation. Anyway, um, now it's a little different because they were contracting with them for, you know. And and that involves a congressional statute, and and what Maine has done in this new round hasn't yet come to the Supreme Court, so you're right, um, stay tuned um, Yeah, and I can think of some other issues, like, so for example, what, you know, suppose you say, well, um, we're going to have a list of books that you have to teach, okay, at every school in in Maine, which, you know, on its face 
would seem perfectly reasonable, right? School, states do things like that all the time. But if some of the books, you know, run afoul of various religious, you know, opinions or whatever, the, the, you know, to, to, I would, in general, too bad, so sad for the religion because if you were going to teach, you have to teach Newton and Galileo and Copernicus mm-hmm. and Darwin. You don't have to teach them as revealed truth, but you have to teach them a scientific method and the theory, at least, of the origin of species and all the rest as science. Yes, we can require that in order to be accredited, you teach astronomy and not astrology. Because, actually, you don't get the voucher if you're Fagan's, you know, school for pickpockets. We teach you to pick a pocket or two. And if your school is just a madras that's actually not teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, then it doesn't qualify for accreditation standards. But there's, there's also been some uh, exemptions for religious uh, institutions in employment law and things like that. So... Do you have so to we, we won't those? get into all the details today, Andy, but it is true that, for example, among American universities, you're very interested in, in university policy. You, you've thought about being a, you know, a Yale trustee and the rest. Most schools in the, uh, the American Association of University Professors, for example, their set of practices, schools in the NCAA, the schools aren't allowed to discriminate on the basis of race or sex. But Notre Dame is allowed, or religion in general, but certain religious schools are allowed to, to be part of the NCAA and the American Association of University Professors, even if they have a, pri- a principled preference for co-religionists. And uh, Notre Dame can say we actually want to have Catholics on our faculty and on our student body. And BYU can say we're actually an LDS school, Latter-day Saints. Or Yeshiva can say we're a school that's a special haven for Jews. So there, there are all sorts of additional complexities. But let me tell you, since I mentioned uh, my dear friend Justice Sotomayor, how she loses me literally in her first sentence. The court today continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state the framers fought to build. My claim is, actually, I don't love that metaphor. It's not really clear that the framers tried to do all that. Maybe that's Jefferson's idea, but that wasn't the uh, the Bill of Rights. You don't really give any historical evidence for that. You're appealing to originalism. You have to. We all do it, even though you dumped on it in your your dissent in Dobbs. But we all do. You can't do constitutional law without talking about the Constitution's text and its context and what its purposes were. So of course you have to do that. But if you're going to do it, you've got to earn the right to do it. You got to know your history. And this isn't quite right. But also, with all due respect, Justice Sotomayor, I don't like this separation idea. Um, I don't think it's actually the right metaphor, and the wall of separation can lead to discrimination and did, in your opinion, in this case. But you're not even looking at the right text or the right century because, strictly speaking, this is not about the framers. It's about the 14th Amendment in the 1860s. And that's just what Justice Thomas was actually highlighting in the Bruin case, the need to focus on the 1860s and not just the 1790s, which generated the Bill of Rights. And the deep idea of the 1860s is religious equality, and you're ending up authorizing discrimination against religious parents and religious students and religious schools as such. And the reason that it's a... A 14th Amendment case appeals because it's a state law, Maine. Correct. Correct. It's the state of Maine. Right. So it's not a complicated, you know, route from 
from from that to, to seeing and the support. So now you case. see why originalism matters, and and everyone appeals to the framers, but they now but they don't always do the work. Now here's what's going to further horrify you, because see, because there's a culture war going on, and. You know, I'm a Democrat in a coastal part of the country and, and teaching at Ivy League University. And a lot of people on that side look down their noses at the, at the great unwashed and they say, oh, they're just rubes and yahoos and they don't know anything. But actually, on a couple of things, ooh, um, it's actually the Washington Post and the New York Times and the liberal intelligentsia that may actually have gotten some things wrong. So here's a, a piece from the Washington Post, uh, July 2nd. In trainings, Florida tells, this is the headline, in trainings, Florida tells teachers that religion belongs in public life. Here's the opening passage. New civics training for Florida public school teachers comes with a dose of Christian dogma, some teachers say, and they worry that it also sanitizes history and promotes inaccuracies. Included in the training is the statement that it is, quote, a misconception that the founders desired strict separation of church and state, unquote. I'm saying, actually, that's not a misconception. That's actually closer to being correct. And here's what's a misconception, that the pilgrims are thanking the Indians. Well, maybe, but they're also thanking God. And yeah, they came here for religious freedom, but they also came to oppress other folks who had different religious views. They, they, some of them were rather theocratic, alas. Here's another passage, and this one is very provocative. And this is from People Magazine, June 29th. Two days before her primary election, Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert preached to churchgoers at an event. Quote, The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. This is not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does, she told Colorado Springs crowd on Sunday. Now, there's some things that are not quite right about that. But, you think? Um, yeah, but hold on, Andy. I do think that there's some things that actually are uncomfortably close to being right. Lots of very smart, woke folks actually are maybe more wrong than right on this. So here's what she says. The church is supposed to direct the government. Well, I don't know about that, but suppose we just modified it. Church Goers are supposed to direct the government or allowed to direct the government. Clergymen are allowed to direct the government. Yes, they are. That was the McDaniel versus Patey case that we talked about. Clergy are allowed to run for office, and we don't discriminate against them under a theory of separation, that they must be separated in every respect from government. And today we think about the religious right in America but I just want to remind folks that much of American history is about actually a religious left in which prominent clergy folk and their affiliates were involved in American public life. Harriet Beecher Stowe writes a book that is the most important book of the century, perhaps, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it's political, it's artistic, but it's also religious, and she comes from a very prominent family of 
preachers. They're as prominent a family, the Beechers, as the Falwells or the, the Billy Graham family you know, might, might be today. In, Andy, in your and my lifetime, you know, it's Martin Luther King who's playing a big role in American public life and he's openly religious. He's, trying to, he's described in, in schools as a civil rights leader. That's how you, he's always described in um, the New York Times or the Washpo or in textbooks, civil rights leader. But if you had asked him, and remember his name is Martin Luther King. He's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. If you had asked him to describe himself, I think he wouldn't have said, I'm a civil rights leader. He, said, he would have said, I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, first, last, and always, Everything grows out of that. You know, my vision of equality and dignity and peace and love and, and justice and law are come out of my whole life, including my understanding as a, a religious person, indeed, as a, as, a, as a clergy person. So, and if you start with a strong idea of separation of church and state, you might say, oh, you know, clergy people should not be eligible to, to be in government or to be in politics. And the French have that kind of this culture. It's called laicite, the principle of laicity, secularism. They're embarrassed when people in public life wear their religion on their sleeves, when they run for office and, and, and talk about what faith means to them. They would actually truthfully be horrified that presidents choose on the day of their inauguration to add words, so help me God, which aren't in the Constitution when they take an oath of office, which makes them not so different from the coach, which we're going to talk about in just a bit. George Washington chose to, or maybe we'll talk about that um, in, in our next episode, Andy, but George Washington chose to swear his oath of office on a Bible. The Constitution doesn't require that, but it permits it. And he invokes the Almighty in major portions of his inaugural address, and immediately afterwards, he went with a bunch of well-wishers, basically the other members of, the, of, of government, members of Congress, and they all paraded across the street to a church service. There were lots of religious elements in that first inauguration. So, um, and if you had a super strong idea of separation, you'd say all that was wrong. And we'll need to talk about this maybe with the, the coach case, the Kennedy case. He might have said, yeah, I'm a government official, but I'm also a person, and I'm allowed to have a faith and a religion, and to profess that in, in certain ways, as long as, and this is tricky, you know, it's not the government that's praying, it's, it's me, George Washington, that's praying or saying, so help me God. And, and drawing that line when he's President Washington and when he's George Washington, when he's Coach Kennedy and when he's just a, a person choosing to pray. These are some very, very hard and close questions. But the wall of separation does miss a lot. Um, some of those things that you said that apply to George Washington, the difficulty of drawing the line, things like that, are exactly why I don't grant you um, what you said entirely about Representative Boebert, who after all is also an elected official, um, mm -hmm. and saying that the church directs the, the, the government. Now you said, well, maybe that's not quite right, but then you proceeded to translate it into something mm -hmm. that might be correct, but it's still incorrect. Okay, what she said is wrong, and we, and we can't, at least the beginning part, and we can't, you know, take people that are outrageous and translate 
their stuff into something that is that is not outrageous and then say see they weren't that bad so because a lot of the same thing was done with with trump and i don't like it but i do think that you're that you are correct the second part of what she said uh where she talked about the fact that the the uh, wall of separation didn't exist at the founding the way that that we're taught i mean you've convinced me that that is correct through your that, uh, that ironically wow think about this on that I mean, it's it's mind blowing. She's closer to being right than a justice on the Supreme Court. You know, Princeton educated, Yale Law School educated, really, you know, an extraordinary person. But on that separation thing, yeah, Lauren Boebert is closer. If I had, you know, I had to pick, you know, than Justice Sotomayor. Ouch. Right. Well, it just shows that a stop clock is right twice a day. But <laughs> but there you go. But anyway, no, but this... The, so but this I, is why we are in an originalist world and we liberals have to pick up our game and also just not always assume that the folks on the other side are actually bozos, because they're not. We need to know, for example, that many of them think that Roe versus Wade is actually not just Lochner, but Dred Scott. We also need to know when what they're saying is absolutely preposterous, like that Barack Obama was born in Kenya or that Kamala Harris isn't eligible to be president of the United States, or that the election was stolen, or that ISL is actually reasonable. So we're going to need to actually really up our game, because sometimes what folks on the other side, I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat, is saying, are, what, sometimes what they're saying is actually, you know, QAnon, batshit crazy stuff. And sometimes they have a point, but we will only know it when we really study our history much more than many of us have, which is what this podcast is all about, but cards on the table. I'm hoping that at least some people actually engage the books, because that's when I can go through and give you much more evidence and detail. Yeah, well, I think, you know, listening to your exposition of what was going on at the founding uh, on this religious uh, question, you know, is I think most of our listeners would had at least one moment in that where they said, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And there's a lot of that a tremendous amount of that in the book, The Words That Made Us. I mean, wow, what a what an achievement. So, you know, I know I'm, I'm shilling for my partner here, but that's because... You are, and thank but, you for that. But, uh, bless, what, God bless you. What can I say? It's the truth. And I got an acknowledgement. I paid eight, page 800 for it. So there you go. But uh, no, so, so next time we'll take up the Kennedy case and beyond. So until then. wrongdoer, the, 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 the criminal suspect, technically warrants issue against places. They are, in legal term uh, terminology, um, in rem. They go against a place. Okay. So Amar says, and this is relevant to the Stanford Daily News case, oh, it's not just about the quantum of probable cause you need, more likely than not, 40%, whatever. And probable doesn't actually always mean more likely than not, but we won't get into all of that. It's not just how much probability you need to have, but what kind of probability? And I say, oh, you need, this is the kind of probable cause that you really should have. You, at a minimum, the warrant requirement, but again, the cause doesn't quite say this, but this is what would make sense, should require probable cause to believe that the custodian, let's say, of a, of a paper, of a, uh, some document, would defy a subpoena or stricter still would destroy the evidence. 
And why are subpoenas better? See, because they're much less intrusive. You're not rifling through, you're not breaking into someone's house, you're not rifling through their files. And if you have every reason to believe that, of course, they're going to comply, it's so much less intrusive to have a subpoena than a warrant. And that's part of what Trump is arguing. But let me well, first. Uh, hold on. I mean, before we leave this, I think there's other differences between subpoena and a warrant that are, that are relevant here. With a, a warrant, it's ex parte, a subpoena. Yes. You yes, can, you can challenge a subpoena. So, so there's you know, there's an adversarial process potentially there where there isn't in in the case of a warrant. So that's that's a big difference. Yes, um, and you're seeing all this, and so uh, you know, and um, and now you're seeing oh, you're you're seeing due process is implicated here. I've I've mentioned racial equality and sex equality and religious equality. I'm going to talk about First Amendment um, issues, newspapers, and because it says papers. In, 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 in just a minute, um, I've already brought in the civil ju- uh, jury into the equation. But now you're seeing also just fair procedures. Sometimes you have to have ex-party procedures, but they're always dangerous and we shouldn't have more than are absolutely necessary. Okay, so now I'm going to read you what I wrote about the Stanford Daily News case. Searcher versus Stanford Daily News, which was from 1978. Here's what I say. A search or seizure of newspaper files should cause special alarm and require special safeguards. The Wilkes v. Wood case, that was the case involving John Wilkes, should have taught us all about the special dangers posed by the government's searching and seizing documents from the press. And remember, it says papers above and beyond everything else in the world. But the lesson was lost on the court in Zurcher v. Stanford Daily, a 1978 case involving Stanford University's student newspaper. So, by the way, I'm saying the court's getting an easy case wrong because they're not good originalists. Law enforcement officials wanted evidence against violent student protesters and thought they would find some in the files of the Stanford Daily. There was no claim that the Daily had been part of the protest, but the paper had covered the events and was believed to have photographs and other material in its files that might help identify the culprits. Armed with an ex parte warrant, police officers searched the Daily's offices. The Daily then brought a civil suit for declaratory and injunctive relief, and the Supreme Court sided with the government, thereby blessing the search and inviting others like it. So here, the Stanford Daily News has done nothing wrong. This is not an exclusionary rule case where the guilty guys are getting off, you know, um, getting away literally literally with murder on law and order until Jack McCoy figures out, you know, a a way out of that. Um, This is just like Wilkes versus Wood. It involves a newspaper and an improper intrusion, and they're suing for damages in a civil suit and and declaratory relief and and, and a jury trial in open court with lawyers and others. This is just the founding era, what Jed Rubenfeld would call the paradigm case, and the court's going to screw it up badly. The facts of Zurcher cried out for comparison with Wilkes, a civil suit brought to challenge a search carried out under an oppressive warrant for an, an inflammatory newspaper articles, yet the greatest search and seizure case in Anglo-American history went unmentioned and unanalyzed. Warrants were good, required, said the court, and this search had a warrant. You see, judge is good. This had, you know, a judge had authorized this. Bowing to this Fourth Amendment worship of the warrant, Justice Stewart 
joined by Justice Marshall, dissented solely on First Amendment grounds. And by the way, Potter Stewart was editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News, his student newspaper, back as a Yale undergrad. And, and he dissents, but he doesn't quite see the Fourth Amendment thing. He only makes a First Amendment argument. Which is ironic because this is an example of where the First and the Fourth Amendment are in sync. And you yes. know, by referring to pay, papers, it, and you, when you understand Wilkes, it's yes. clear that the press is, is implicated here at First Amendment. Holism. Yes, this is an originalism well done. Okay, back, back to what I said back in 94. What was missing was a way of integrating First Amendment concerns explicitly <laughs> into the Fourth Amendment analysis. And the vehicle for this integration is, of course, not the warrant, not probable cause, but constitutional reasonableness. Indeed, the Zurcher majority mouthed the right words, but then proceeded to ignore them. And here the, here's a quote. Where materials sought to be seized may be protected by the First Amendment, the requirements of the Fourth Amendment must be applied with scrupulous exactitude. A seizure reasonable as to one type of material in one setting may be unreasonable in a different setting or with respect to another kind of material. So just so, but then they miss it all. Okay, what do I say? Under this approach, First Amendment concerns could well trigger special Fourth Amendment safeguards, heightened standards of justification prior to searching, immediate pre-search, appeal, uh, pre-search appealability of any proposed search. That's what you were saying before, Andy, being able to challenge it before, like you could in a subpoena, before the search has happened, with the premises sealed to, in the interim to prevent uh, interim destruction of evidence, specially trained nonpartisan marshals or magistrates or masters to carry out the search and so on. The First Amendment lesson can be generalized. For example, searches of attorney's offices often implicate special concerns of attorney-client privilege protected by the Sixth Amendment. Unless these searches are conducted with special precautions, say an on-the-scene special master to screen out privileged material before any document is probed by police eyes, they too should be deemed constitutionally unreasonable. Why does the court not see any of that? Because it says warrants good, warrants required, judges always good. This was a judge in advance. There was a warrant. It met the, the rules of the Fourth Amendment, probable cause, but they didn't ask what kind of probable cause. Yes, probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed and there was evidence of a crime, but not probable cause to believe that the Stanford Daily News was in cahoots in any way, shape, or form with the criminal, not probable cause to believe that they would actually destroy the evidence and flush it down the toilet. And it's so outrageous, you see, because and because th- they're actually not taking a student newspaper seriously. That's what I think. I think these are oldsters, and now we're back to 18 arguments for 18 years. If this had been the Washington Post, let's go back to our episode with the great Bob Woodward, Imagine that reading Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's stories every day, Richard Nixon had gotten the bright idea of, of trying to rifle through the files of the Washington Post. And, and here's what he does. He goes to some judge. He gets his, his henchman, to, um, his justice department to go to some judge and says, we have just read a story about prostitution on the streets of Washington, D.C., you know, an expose about prostitution. Again. You know, we're shocked, shocked. The gambling, the prostitution is going on in D.C. And it appears that the Washington Post has some evidence of um, that, that might um, bear on this. There's probable cause, indeed, to believe that they have evidence of a crimes being committed in Washington, D.C. So we want a warrant and actually to go right, rifle through their files. And I think, you think, my God. Yeah, that would be horrible. Now, in fact, 
because the Supreme Court so badly screwed the pooch, it was 5-3, in the Zurcher case, Congress actually overrode them in a statute signed by Jimmy Carter. It's discussed in the article. It's the Privacy Protection Act of 1980, and it says when it comes to newspapers um, there are, and journalists, there are special protections. And that's good. Um, but I'm saying, gee, in today's world, maybe, you know, every tweeter is a, is a journalist of source. It's a little tricky. I'm making a different point. I'm actually saying there, there needs to be, in general, even if we're not talking about a newspaper, even if we're talking about Mar-a-Lago or, 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 or your house or mine, um, there needs to be probable cause to believe that a subpoena would be unavailing because a subpoena is less intrusive. Probable cause to believe, to repeat, that um, if a subpoena issued, the recipient of the subpoena would um, destroy the evidence uh, rather than comply with the lawful subpoena after proper appeal. And now we're in a perfect position, I think, to return to to, uh, Florida and Trump versus Garland. Okay. Now, we don't have all the facts, um, but... We do know some of the issues that people have, uh, have discussed. So we're in a position to, to talk about it. Um, but, of course, we're going to qualify what we have to say um, with the notion that we don't have, have all the facts. And not everyone has uh, been so, uh, so careful, when, <laughs> including yes, uh, some um, of your uh, students. Uh, I, do you have anyone in mind, Andy? Well, I, I, one of, I think one of your students may not have learned this lesson uh, yes, one of my students who shall remain nameless, uh, him who shall not be named, but um, whose name rhymes with um, a gosh molly, um, um, and whose initials are J.H., and who is a senator of the United States without, you know, it seems, knowing many of the facts. Now, maybe he knew the facts, and if so, I just committed a gross injustice, but it seems without really knowing a lot of the facts, immediately said, Garland must be impeached oh, wow, and presumably convicted, and he's going to be on, as a senator, um, part of the judge and jury um, in that impeachment trial, or must resign immediately. And that was before, I think, knowing any of the facts of the situation. Now, if this senator knew a lot of facts, then I take everything back. But if the senator didn't know any of the facts, gee, that's not what I taught the senator in law school. And he would have to know quite a lot of facts that are uh, you know, opposed to what's out there now. To the degree that we have facts now, and we do have some because the the warrant was released, and and we and uh, so, so let's General Garland with- has made some statements that with con- containing factual uh, you know assurances that that they tried to get the uh, information from President ex President Trump uh, by less invasive means than a than a uh, warrant before they conducted the search. So there there are certain facts out there. So let's actually go through. He said. He said. Uh, Trump and the Justice Department, in fact, Garland, th- with this framework of analysis. Because I'm trying to show you originalism is actually smarter than the court. And the court needs to actually straighten out its precedence here, just as it did um, when it came to the lemon test in the um, religion uh, context or unenumerated rights with um, uh, uh, Dobbs and Glucksburg and Roe. Trump, you broke into my house, my beautiful house. And I think, 
yeah, I, I, I feel your pain. I wouldn't want anyone breaking into my house. I get it. And the Fourth Amendment gets it, too, because the Fourth Amendment actually focuses on houses, which is a domain of, of, of privacy. Um, and, and we talked about in the Griswold case, your marital bedroom, for example. And Trump also says, oh, and they rifled through my papers. And I'm thinking, yes, I hear you. The Fourth Amendment actually has special protections about papers. And that's what the Wilkes versus Wood case, in fact, was all about. And the court missed all of that in Zurcher versus Sanford Daily News. Yes, it wasn't the House, but these were very important papers with First Amendment significance, you see. Okay. So Trump, that's how Trump begins. And in fact, the Justice Department said, a warrant. Um, we had a warrant. We didn't just do this on our own. And because any government official who did this on his own oh, was going to get sued big time. And you can be sure that they're not going to do this. They're going to want actually a piece of paper that authorizes this. Now, what kind of piece of paper was that warrant? It was issued by a magistrate, you know, by someone who's not in. It doesn't answer to Joe Biden. Can't be fired. Wasn't uh, can't be fired at will by Joe Biden the way the secretary of Um, defense can, or the attorney general for that matter, but the attorney general didn't issue this warrant. Biden didn't issue this warrant. A Biden lackey didn't issue this warrant. A magistrate in the judicial department issued this warrant. And as it turns out, and then you can say, oh, but maybe they actually are just judge shopping. Remember, I think warrants are not always the greatest things in the world. And yet another thing, they're not just secret in general, um, an ex parte, um, but maybe the government can shop around. But in this case, they didn't. Apparently, they got the warrant from someone who was commissioned by none other than Donald J. Trump. Good for them. Okay. And so the Justice Department said, we got a warrant. It it met all the requirements of the Fourth Amendment warrant clause. They say in that there was probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed, improper uh, handling of government uh, property and maybe even uh, classified property at that, seek um, dangerous information at that. So probable cause to believe a crime had been committed and probable cause to believe that we would find evidence of that in this place. Oh, and we have an oath. We have this under oath and we submitted an affidavit with all of our reasons signed off by the judge. And, and, and at first you could say, well, so you say, because usually you see warrants aren't published in the New York Times or the Washington Post. They're not just issued in the government press release. They are given to the, the, to the person um, on the premises. Um, um, uh, the, the warrant is shown to the person on the premises. And if anything is taken pursuant to the warrant, because the warrant itemizes what they're looking for, and if you find anything that you're looking for any, and you seize it, you being the government, you have to itemize what you've taken and and leave a list of that on the premises here, Miralago, and take it back to the judge who issued the warrant so that judge can cross check it against what the judge had authorized. And then there could be a lawsuit if they don't match up or something. But but all of those procedures were actually followed. And in this case, the warrant was unsealed and it was unsealed because Trump made a big deal of it, and so he, the, the, the Justice Department called his bluff and said, you know, then we think public interest here um, suggests um, that the public should have access to this unless you have any objection, uh, Mr. Ex-President, um, and he was kind of boxed in, okay? But ordinarily, warrants don't, aren't, aren't quite public. Now, thus far, you see, the Justice Department has been playing it straight by the book, but Amar says, gee, warrants 
are sometimes problematic. And we've already identified a couple of ways in which they might be problematic. But this is not what doctrine says. One thing is what, what happens if you sort of do judge shopping? Well, that didn't quite happen here. A second is what kind of probable cause did you have? Did you have probable cause to believe, not just that you would find evidence, um, but a probable cause to believe that a subpoena or something less intrusive you know, would have been unavailing? And Trump, of course, says they could have just asked for the stuff. You know? But at least the, you know, the Justice Department is saying, we kind of did. We kind of tried to work with you and your lawyers for a long time, and you weren't very cooperative. And you denied, actually, that you had any additional stuff, but we had reason to think that wasn't true. You, we had reason to think you, you lied to us. Oh, well, you should have issued a subpoena, Trump says, because that would have been so much less intrusive. One, doctrine doesn't say that. That's actually the Zurcher versus Stanford Daily News case. Um, but Amar says maybe doctrine should going forward, but it doesn't right now. And by the way, even if it did, then I think on the facts of this case, the Justice Department might very well have been able to say, here are our reasons for having probable cause to believe that the subpoena you know, would not have actually been uh, complied with. Final thing, Amar actually is saying, once you understand this isn't limited to newspaper offices, it's a more general issue about how warrants aren't always perfect, that some issues could be implicated by searches, for example, of attorney's offices, which implicate attorney-client privileges of third parties. Suppose you think the attorney's a crook. Fine. But the attorney, you're looking for certain things, but when you're looking for them, you're rifling through and finding other pieces of paper implicating, you know, um, uh, other folks, his clients, and maybe completely legal things, but embarrassing things, totally legal, but, but very private. Amar says, once we realize, actually, that warrants aren't always perfect, we could add additional safeguards to certain um, searches, even though they have a warrant in, in um, sensitive situations and sensitive places. And what did I propose in particular? Again, doctrine doesn't do this, but once you focus on constitutional reasonableness, then you'll see you know, um, why I'm proposing these things. Here are some special precautions I propose. Say an on-the-scene special master to screen out privileged material before any document is probed by police eyes. So in this situation, it would have been great if the Supreme Court had listened to what I wrote in 1994 and at some point um, said, in certain situations, the search should be carried out under the watchful eye of a judicial figure, not an executive branch person, picked by the warrant signing judge or magistrate um, to um, uh, make sure that um, uh, uh, nothing um, uh, is um, uh, being rifled through that shouldn't be rifled through. Here's the problem with papers. The problem with papers is you don't, you often don't know if it's the paper you're looking for until you read it. And once you've read it, even if it's not the paper you're looking for, um, well, now you know some private information that you really you know, weren't supposed to know. Well, if and, and if you're the, um, ultimately in the FBI, which answers to Christopher Wray, who under the decision of 1789 um, answers to Joe Biden, oh, that's going to raise all sorts of issues. So wouldn't it have been better 
if actually the person looking at each piece of paper and seeing if it corresponds to what the government is asking for, uh, has, has said it's looking for, wasn't actually an executive branch official, an FBI official, but in effect, a judicial officer looking at each piece of paper and saying, is this what the government says it's looking for? Yes, no. Um, but doctrine to repeat doesn't generally require this because the court screwed the pooch in my um, opinion in the Stan- Zercher versus Stanford Daily News case, and you see me complaining about this way back in 1994. The good news for the Justice Department is that although the, perhaps we don't know, they, they might have had a special master there that we don't know about, but or, or some other neutral observer, but they, uh, Christopher Ray, at least, uh, as we recall, is a holdover from the Trump administration. So he was, uh, you know, appointed by a Republican president and confirmed. Indeed by a uh, Republican Senate. Yes. So there, there is that from a political point of view, that the certain degree of neutrality there. So if we look at the Justice Department... But, under, but hang on, Andy, let's just connect. But under the rule of the decision of 1789, I think he's fireable at will, you see. And, and um, so in a Mars world, precisely because executive officials do answer to the president, it might have been nice to have you know, a judicial officer on the scene, but to repeat, doctrine doesn't require that because doctrine is seeing everything completely upside down, thinking warrants are always good and that language of limiting warrants suffices. You know, we don't need to ever add to that because doctrine doesn't see connections to the first, uh, sufficiently, the First Amendment, the Sixth Amendment in the case of attorney-client privilege. You know, here it would be much more broad concerns about the unique issues, let's be honest, that are implicated when former presidents and possible future presidents are intruded upon by an administration of the opposite political party. I mean, that Um, does introduce, you know, uh, complications in general. But I would say, in this case, you know, you keep talking about Zercher, but this is not Although there are papers involved, this is not a you know a press freedom uh, issue or even a political speech issue. It's a question of whether or not it appears to be anyway uh, uh, whether or not the ex president had papers in his possession that he wasn't entitled to, whether he in effect stole them. Um, um, but but listen, our friend Bob Woodward had all sorts of papers that from a certain point of view, he wasn't entitled to that people had, had leaked to him, the Pentagon papers and Ellsberg and, and, and of course, presidents are going to say, Oh, I want these papers for my memoirs and, and all the rest. I'm going to be a journalist going forward. So some of these things raise some complexities, but papers are special. Akil thinks that because he reads all the words of the Fourth Amendment, not just the word warrant and probable cause and thinks he's done. So why did they go out of their way to specify three kinds of search targets that are particularly problematic above and beyond everything else in the world? A catch-all is effects, stuff, everything. And they say persons, seizures of persons, that would be arrests or stopped or frisks or something like that. That raises some real issues of bodily autonomy, of privacy, don't you see? Um, papers raise all sorts of issues of, of press freedom, but also personal diaries and the like, and houses which are, in a word, very personal. And Camden, Lord Camden says all of that in Wilkes versus Wood, and James Otis says 
much of that in the writs of assistance case. And, and the one thing, if I could rewrite Fourth Amendment first principles or modify it, the one thing that I would do is actually tweak a bit what I said about the writs of assistance because I didn't realize. I thought it was only John Adams 50 years later basically saying it was a big deal because I was there. I, John Adams. And that's why John, and that is part of why John Adams makes a big deal of it because he was there and, and, and he wants to say, oh, I was first, I was first, I was first. Of course, I would never say anything like that. You know, our audience is laughing, of course. But I come to realize, no, I think I actually underplayed the significance of the risk of assistance because to repeat, the writs of assistance had a huge impact on John Adams. That's undeniable, point one. Point two, he was indeed the draftsman of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which has a search and seizure provision in it. That's point two, which point three is clearly, when you read the language of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, one of the precursors um, of the Fourth Amendment itself. And because the people of Massachusetts cared about it at the time, which is why they elected James Otis um, to the legislature following this, which they had failed to do previously. And what Andy is winking at me is that he is the one who reminded me to say that in chapter one. And, oh, he was so wise because that key little point in chapter one is what makes that whole chapter pop. Let me actually read you this paragraph because Andy wrote actually, um, I think, the best line in this paragraph. So here's what I said about just that, Andy, thanks to you. And I still remember, you know, it was 11 p.m. and I was calling you, you know, from the house and, and I said, oh, you're right. Let me just, you know, add, add some new language. Adams, old Adams surely understood that Otis lost legally in 1761. The fiery lawyer, that is Otis, had won politically. Otis played to the crowd, not to the court. Like someone you know, <laughs> Trump perhaps, in the eyes of the crowd, the leading merchant smugglers who hated the Ritz, the sea of consumers who generally sided with the smugglers who kept consumer costs low, the patrons of the Boston Gazette, this newspaper that would it was basically Trump's mouthpiece, think, think Fox News or One America or whatever, in the eyes of, of all of those folks, Attorney Otis won his case. He lost in court, but he won with, the, with his political backers. Less than three months after, and largely because of his hot words um, at the trial, Otis landed his first seat in the Massachusetts Assembly. Once in the Assembly, Otis used his new platform to continue to agitate against London-backed insiders like you know the judges in the case. Otis may not have followed cool legal logic, in February 1761, but he had found and touched a political nerve. And that, that, that last sentence is a really great one. And that's, ladies and gentlemen, that's Andy Lipka's sentence, which I was at least wise enough to, 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 to borrow with his kind permission. And you should realize that uh, Akil never lets anybody write anything in any That is books, true. So. Probably. That is true. Even if it's just one that, sentence. That can get you, letting other people write your sentences can get you in a lot of trouble, but we're not going to go there today. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, all right. So if we look at the Justice Department's actions then here, I think that it appears that they were careful um, in, in a variety of ways that, oh. that's consistent with not only doctrine, but also with your sense of how it should be. 
You know, they tried I, to get the papers by other means. They tried to ask nicely first, then they thought about the subpoena route, but they believe that they were being lied to. Now, again, if that's, you know, if, if all this is going to have to be borne out, um, that's what they're saying, at least. Well, there's, there's and, reason and we to do, believe well, that that's true, because Trump's lawyers provided, there, there was a letter from Trump's lawyers that says, we've now given you all the papers that, uh, right. that you asked for. But, so, but, but I haven't, with my own eyeballs, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, seen the, these, these papers in these boxes, but they say we found a whole bunch of stuff that was not properly, legally in his possession that they denied having. And he's gonna, and he says, "Oh, that's all declassified." And the Justice Department says, "Even if it's declassified, it's still not your stuff. These are government documents and not your documents." Now, see, we're back to property law. You see, and in effect, you have stolen government property, even if even if it were prop, even if it had been properly declassified. And there's a debate about that. There are. Other statutes on the books about improper possession, private possession of government documents. The rightful owners of those papers, Andy, from a certain point of view, you see, are you and me and, and our audience, the rest of the American people. They're our papers and not his. Um, and, and that was and now we're back to Bob Woodward and Watergate and the statute that was passed um, in, in the aftermath of Watergate specifying whose papers these really are. Just like. It matters, for example, if we're talking about Miralago, which is a private house, one set of rules apply there, or if we're talking about a congressional office, which is, you know, the people's house, you know, or the White House, which is the people's house. Property law, trespass law, all these things are really important in the analysis. Yeah, classification, I mean, it's not really a constitutional matter, although there are, it does have some implications in terms of the executive power, but... Uh, the New York Times had an article on Sunday, which uh, explains a lot of the different, a lot of the issues surrounding classification. I really highly recommend that article. But the, one of the basic points is that classification has yeah, to I, do. Yeah, I, I learned stuff from that article. That was that was well done. Uh, the basic point there is that classification has to do with who gets to handle the papers, <laughs> um, and really, so so Trump was saying, well. You know, I have a rule that everything is declassified the moment I remove it. But the thing is, that has no meaning because it has to do with who gets to handle it. And if he doesn't tell anybody, then then how could that be affected? That's number one. Number two, the warrant and the law say nothing about classified papers. It has to do with secrecy and the papers involved. Some of them had, you know, TC top or, or T, TS rather top secret classification and that or, or rather uh, categorization and that has nothing to do with classifications the word classification doesn't even appear in the world well, I, i'm making a different point altogether you know even if there were no concerns uh, about that maybe let's just imagine they're just embarrassing but they're not his politically embarrassing they're not his papers right. um, and so he's not allowed to keep them withhold them from um the, their proper governmental repository because they're not his Right. So there's, uh, there's any number of issues. Not his. They're secret. They shouldn't have been removed. Um, and so, and there's a but lot to repeat, issues. you know, the facts are changing uh, daily and it, it's possible that the worm will turn uh, once or twice more. But I've identified analytically the relevant issues, you see. The other thing that happened this week was that, uh, uh, or the following week, I guess, is that uh, 
deposition is, is given and uh, Donald Trump takes the fifth. So that opens up the door for some more discussion of other uh, issues down the road. We're not going to get into that right. today. How the fourth and the fifth amendment self-incrimination clause came to come together, what I call fourth, fifth fusion to generate this monstrosity of the exclusionary rule, how all of that has come unglued in the modern era, but courts still are keeping the exclusionary rule. They're like Wiley e. Coyote. They have no ground underneath them, but they just refuse to, to look down. <laughs> Before we leave this, I have a d- question for you about the about your Fourth Amendment formulations, which doesn't really bear on Trump per se, or maybe it maybe it would. But um, you talked about where there's a right, there should be a remedy, and you talk about remedies in tort where you can sue. Um, that strikes me as extremely unwieldy. That uh, that for for a defendant to be able to uh, enforce uh, his rights against trespass and other you know, bad searches that he, uh, he or she needs to, to sue in civil court. Um, first well, of all, remember, seems- he's not a defendant because in Amar's world, you know, nothing has been, he's completely innocent. I'm right. actually saying at the core of the fourth amendment is an innocent person wrongly intruded upon who wants to have his day in court, her day in court uh, uh, publicly with a jury trial. And right now that person's getting screwed even as, uh, people like OJ, uh, or at least their, or their equivalents on Law and Order, are um, getting off scot-free. And that's utterly perverse. And that's not how England does it even today. That's not how any state in America or the federal government did it for 100 years, first 100 years after the Declaration of Independence. And there are some justices who are aware of that today on the court. Most of them aren't. And the justices who are, are originalists like Clarence Thomas. And they're beginning to actually say, hey, maybe we need to rethink all this. Cut back even more on the exclusionary rule, but also beef up much more remedies for innocent people. When states do it, that's called 1983, um, but there are lots of limitations on it. When the federal government officials do it, that's called Bivens. And actually, unfortunately, some self-described originalists are cutting back on Bivens when they should be actually expanding Bivens. But we're going to have to talk about all that in another episode. Okay, well, I've got some more on that. So, audience, if you if you have uh, some questions on that, I invite you to write in about that because I, I do want to discuss that some more and, at some and, point. And here's the challenge, audience. There, there are going to be all sorts of imperfections, I admit, in a civil damage system, which is the framer system of enforcing the Fourth Amendment. Here's my claim. Every single thing that you're going to say about a civil damage action has a counterpart in the exclusionary rule that's the same or much, much, much worse. And that you can't do without a civil damage action. So that's my first point. My second point is you can't do without a civil damage system because if if we're only exclusionary rule, it would be open season on innocent people, and we can't allow that. The Fourth Amendment actually shall not be violated. And the framers were way wiser than Andy. I suspect you may be giving them credit for. There are all sorts of ways, and we can talk about them. Lord Camden came up with various ways of beefing up the civil damage model, the, uh, the civil model more generally. We can also, it doesn't have to be damages. It can be injunctions and uh, declaratory judgments, all sorts of things. But we need to build up the civil model, the civil enforcement model for innocent people and toss overboard this exclusionary rule that only protects the guilty and the guiltier are, the, the more it benefits you and 
That's just utterly upside down. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very good case study in originalism versus court doctrine um, in one of the, I believe, relatively few areas where they're not properly in alignment. In a whole bunch of areas, they are in alignment. The cases, 95% of the time, in many, many areas of constitutional law make sense, but not here. Okay, so imagine a world audience where there's no exclusionary rule, but there is an action against the government. Those things work together, so you can't think about them in isolation and, ha- and have a reasonable system. So they both have to have to be fixed, <laughs> I would say, in order to get to uh, to that that endpoint that would serve justice. And next time, Hilton taxes, direct taxes, slavery, and more. Thank you.